What we have before us today is a difficult subject. It deals with the sovereignty of God, which can be quite controversial in some circles. We also see themes of reprobation, which can be even more controversial. Why is this controversial? Well, because people want to preserve an apparent autonomous self-will, human free will, above all else. But then we see God sitting as a judge, deciding to harden the hearts and blind the eyes of potential converts. And that just seems to be a bridge too far for many. They don't want to accept a God who does that. But this is the reality of the Spirit-inspired text before us. Something that we have to contend with. Now, this doesn't require us to adopt some view of robotic determinism where nothing we do ultimately has any meaning. And we could consider, for instance, in our, in our morning Bible readings, we just watched the Israelites get out of Egypt. God had promised that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And yet also in the text, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Both were active. There is an interplay in scripture between human choices and the moral consequences which come with those choices and the divine sovereign decrees of God. Both exist in scripture. You might say, I don't know how that works. And that's a good, honest answer because the truth is none of us fully can comprehend how that works. If God is a sovereign ruler over creation, if we think about that, we can think about how the sun, moon, stars, how the biological realities operate in our, in our bodies, how the ecological systems of the universe work. And we think of the fact that God holds all of that together. We can also think about the fact that God has decreed the actions of mankind. He knows what the future is, the end from the beginning, because he decreed at the beginning what would happen. That means that he has decreed that certain human actions would happen. There is divine sovereignty within the cosmos, and some would say, well, that's a kind of determinism. And it is. But scripture is just as clear that human beings are morally responsible. They are culpable for the choices that they make. And they will be judged according to those choices, scripture says. How does that fit together? Well, theologians use the term compatibilism to describe the fact that these two realities exist side by side in scripture that they are compatible. The sovereign will of God exists compatibly with human will. And as we consider the complexity of nature, we can begin to imagine that a God who can create such 
such a world around us can also create plans which are also very complex in their interplay. You say, that's a lot more than I can imagine. Yes, and me as well, because we are finite creatures thinking about the infinite plans of the infinite God. <laughs> but we do see such an interplay in this very passage here. And we are reaching the end of Jesus's ministry. We have, in fact, reached the end. And what do we see? People are not accepting his message. They reject him. And this passage explains that this rejection was a fulfillment of God's prophecy. And this is a fulfillment of God's eternal purposes to bring about salvation in Jesus Christ. And yet, the people's rejection of Christ is a result of their own moral failing. They can't blame God for this. This is their own moral failing. Only a God who, who, who can make everything we see around us can, can operate in this way. But we do see that the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of decrees, does exist alongside of our choices. And because the people have rejected Christ, the Father has also decreed that he is going to use their rejection to bring about the salvation of many. And praise God that he does that. He uses their sin in a sinless way himself to bring about greater glory to himself. And to do so, he executes judgment by ensuring that their rejection will continue. He is as the righteous judge decreeing a hardening of the people. And so as we consider this, we're going to consider three facts about his judicial judgment, his judicial hardening, his judicial blinding of their eyes. We're going to note that those who are judicially hardened will not come to Christ. We'll note that they will not believe in Christ. And finally, we'll note that they will not confess Christ. So let's note the first of those. Those judicially hardened won't come to Christ. Again, verses 34 through 36. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and then he went away and hid himself from them. Hmm. 
Well, as we noted uh, just a few moments ago, the crowd has just heard Jesus' prophecy concerning himself. He is about to be lifted up. He's about to die. And the people don't accept that explanation. Their first inclination is to doubt him. This is interesting because these are people who seem to come to him in faith, and yet now they are already withdrawing from him. And it's interesting, too, that they're using something of God's to justify their unbelief, and that is his word. They refer to scripture with their concerns. And the word law that they use here, of course, can be a general term for all of God's holy word. Jesus uses it this way in John 10, 34, when he refers to the law. He's actually referencing Psalm 82 there. But here they say that we have heard from the law that the Messiah will abide he will remain forever. What scripture are they referring to when they say that? There's actually several places in scripture that they might be referring to. In fact, one commentator, D.A. Carson, he notes here, what passage they have in mind is uncertain. Isaiah 9-7 promises that the kingdom of the expected prince of the house of David will be established forever. In Ezekiel 37.25, God promises that David, my servant, will be Israel's prince forever. Some scholars think of Psalm 72.17, where the name of the king, the royal son, the Messiah, will endure forever. Others think of Psalm 89. 35 through 37, where the psalmist declares that David's seed, his line, will remain forever. That's a lot of different places, and I will add to that that he didn't list all of the places. These are just some of the places that they may have had in mind. And I'll also add to that that these are all true passages. So how does that line up with Jesus' revelation that he's about to die? Well, the answer, as we know, because we've read the book, right? The answer is the resurrection. The resurrection is how he will then come back to life and then remain forever. That's the missing piece of the puzzle. But they don't understand. They don't have that piece yet. And so they begin to pit some of God's word against the word of Christ. And that's what unbelievers sometimes do. Sometimes it's vice versa. They pit Christ's word against the rest of God's word. But either way, the result is the same. The doubting of the revelation of God. Now, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here. It is not wrong. It is not wrong to look to Scripture to try to find out what we should or should not believe about something. Obviously, the Bereans were more noble than those who were in Thessalonica. 
because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so, right? It is good to search these things out. So what's the problem here? Well, they have the Messiah in front of them. <laughs> the Messiah, the Christ. And they furthermore know that he's the Messiah. They are ready to hail him as king. They've seen the miracles. They heard the voice from heaven just a few moments ago. They've seen all of this. They have the evidence before him, but they don't like what he has to say right now. Why? Because they had a, an expectation of what the Messiah should do. They don't want him to die. They want him to be a victor. They don't want him to, to be a victim of Rome. They want him to be victorious over Rome. That's what they're looking for. And so now there's the, even an aggressiveness in their questioning. How can you say this? And there, there's an emphatic pronoun there in the original language. How can you, you how can you say this? The Son of Man must be lifted up. They don't want a Son of Man who's going to die. And they appeal to Scripture to try to say that the Son of Man shouldn't do this. Even though the same Scripture says, yes, he is the suffering servant. And yes, he is going to die. And that is in places like Isaiah 53, which gets quoted in just a moment. But this shows us that when people use the Bible to refute an issue or a position, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. Sometimes, sometimes we think that someone will say something and someone else will say, ah, but the Bible says this. And we say, oh, well, that person referenced the Bible. They must be right. Not necessarily. Right? We have to, as Charles Spurgeon said, not just discern the difference between right and wrong, but the difference between right and almost right. They have good information, sure, but they are missing a piece of the puzzle. So we can't just assume that whoever answers with the Bible is necessarily the person who is in the right Jesus points them back to himself. You know what he said elsewhere in John 5? Let's take a look back at John 5. This is what he said to the Pharisees. John 5, 39. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, he's not contradicting that, but he says this. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They want the eternal life, but they don't want to come to Jesus for it. And so they search the Bible, but they don't want to bow their knee to this king. This is what Jesus says. Now, here he uses a different illustration, that of light. That of light. Speaking of himself, now he doesn't say he's the life. He says he's the lights. 
And this is an, a rich image, of course, in John's gospel. Jesus says this elsewhere, and instead of Jesus elsewhere, like in 1 John 2.10, when the apostle begins to speak about Jesus, he labels him, John 1.4, he says, he is the light of men. And in verse 9, he says, he enlightens every man. This is an image that John uses to paint Jesus with. And Jesus himself uses this imagery. And he warns them twice in John 7 and John 9 that the light will not always be with them. Now he's warning them it's going out. It's leaving them. It's only there for a little while longer. He's warning them because the children of Israel, they have enough information about Jesus. He's been there ministering amongst them for three years. They have the scripture to compare his ministry to and see that he is doing everything that the Messiah was predicted to do. Even if they don't understand how everything fits together, like how is he going to die and live forever? Okay, it may be that they don't quite understand that, but they should still accept his word as the Messiah and say, Lord, I don't understand it yet, but your will be done. That's, that's how it should be with all of us, because we guess what? We don't always have it all figured out either, right? That's, how, that's what their attitude should have been. But, by the way, they have the light before them to illuminate their understanding. But Jesus warns them that they are turning away from the light, and that this is happening for the final time. They won't have the light anymore. There's a time when the candle is finally extinguished. While the darkness cannot overtake the light, they need to hear that the darkness can overtake those who don't have the light. It can seize them. It can arrest or take their hearts. And as that happens, they will lose what little knowledge and what little light that they already have. The greater light will pass them by, and it will take with it all of the lesser lights, leaving the people only with darkness and stumbling. That is the judgment. Say, so, well, is there any good news with that? Well, yes, verse 36 does give us a word of good news. As we read that again, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. It is through belief, by the way, not by works. Jesus never says it's by works. He says, you want to know the works of the Father, it's, it, it's to do this. Believe in the one whom he has sent. It is through faith, it is through trusting the Messiah, the Christ, that we can come to the light. And if we come to the light, Jesus says, you will be transformed by the light. Elsewhere, he talks about the sons of this age. Here, he says, you will become sons of light, 
Oh, wow. I don't have to be a child of darkness anymore. I can be a child of the light. Yes, because you'll be connected to him, the son of God, the light of light. And you will be brought into that light. Ephesians 5, 7, and 8 say the same thing, that we can become children of the light, and we can walk as children of light. We don't have to continue to stumble in the darkness anymore. This is a, this is a gracious invitation that is extended not only to the Jews of that day, but to all of us who realize that we walk in darkness. This is an invitation to all of us that we walk in the light. And if we're walking in the light, guess what? That means that we can begin to discern the, the errors of this life. We can see the potholes and the pitfalls of life, and we can avoid those. We don't have to stumble in the darkness anymore. As we apply God's word to our lives and to each of the situations that we face so how do they react to this invitation? Well, we're not told. In fact, we're not even given any indication as to what they do. Because the text now meets us with an abrupt transition. This translation, as do others, in fact, mark this point as the beginning of a new paragraph. even though it's just the middle of the verse. Jesus said that the light would be with them only a little while longer. And then he hides himself. I mean, that's the way to punctuate a point. He just leaves and hides himself from them. It's almost like when Noah built the ark, Think about it. He was preaching righteousness. He was preaching deliverance from the coming judgment. But then once he, once he and his family entered into the ark, God shut the door. And the people who realized their folly, once that rain started to fall, they realized it too late. There was no more grace. There was no more deliverance for them. Jesus says, come to him while there's still light. So there's coming a time when there's only darkness. And Jesus himself warns that those who don't believe will be cast into outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sadly, because of the judicial blindness and hardening of the people, these individuals will continue in their unbelief, at least for now. Note that God even allows them to use his word to be abused by them to continue their walk in darkness. Their walk in unbelief. Because those who are judicially hardened won't believe in Christ. And that's our next point. Verses 37 through 41. For though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Verse 37 here, the first words really underscore the, 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 the amount of evidence, the overwhelming evidence that Israel was overlooking. It's not just that miracles alone identify or prove the message of the speaker or the person. False teachers use manufactured signs and wonders and stories to sway people to their side. And we're warned about this in Scripture. Even the Antichrist and his false prophet will use lying signs and wonders. But Jesus was performing precisely the miracles that Scripture predicted the Messiah would fulfill, as well as fulfilling all of the rest of Scripture's prophecy about himself. He is exactly who God predicted in his word. And the text here says that there were so many miracles <laughs> that they are overlooking. What miracles? Well, the, the miracles over the course of his three-year ministry, we could just consider that, right? But really, we don't even need to require the people to go that far back in their minds. They might not have, they might not have seen the miracle of Cana, for instance. They might not have been around at that point. They may have not have yet heard of Jesus of Nazareth by that point. But they're there now. They, they most likely have heard of what happened just a little while ago with Lazarus. Jesus raising him from the dead. And when we add in Matthew's gospel, for instance, we see Matthew 21, 9, 21, 14, excuse me, that Jesus has been healing in the temple. They can see his miracles. They can see him casting out demons. They see all of this right before them. They don't even need to remember these things. God in his grace is giving them a demonstration right then and there, and they are rejecting it. There are people who say, well, if God would open up the heavens and he would speak to me and show me a sign, I would believe. And to that I say, probably not. You would still find some reason to disbelieve if you already disbelieve. He produced miracles, but they rejected him anyway. One might wonder why the people would reject the obvious answer in front of them. But as one commentator notes here, their belief was irrational, as sin always is. 
course, there's a better quote. Sin makes us stupid. It does, doesn't it? They are not thinking rationally about these issues because they are in their sin and their sin will keep them from accepting the truth about Christ. And because of their sin, they do not believe. Now, they are responsible for this. And in fact, their judgment is greater than they can imagine. Jesus has already said this in Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. He begins to pronounce judgment, and he says that Sodom and Gomorrah won't have as much judgment as they will have because they have seen the signs. The Jewish cities have witnessed all of the works that Jesus did in their midst, and they reject him. They don't have nearly the light that Sodom and Gomorrah did. In fact, Jesus said that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if they had the light that these cities had. And so their judgment's going to be greater. Because the people of Israel have chosen, on, on the whole, at multiple points to reject the Messiah, the Lord pronounces judgment upon them. And this judgment is seen in Scripture in two places that are highlighted here, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. In both of these places, a similar judgment occurs or befalls the people of God, where there is a hardening of the heart and a blinding of the eyes. Because the people did not believe in the report of the Lord's messenger. And because they do not believe the report, the arm of the Lord, we read, will not be revealed to them. What is the arm of the Lord? That's speaking of his power. His power. You understand that God doesn't actually have arms, right? God is spirit. The Father is spirit. So what is the arm of the Lord? It's his power. What is his power? Well, his power was seen in places like Egypt, where he delivered his people from bondage. God can deliver people from spiritual darkness. But because they reject the report, he will not reveal his arm to them. And because of that, verse 39 says that the people are unable to believe. Now, of course, this is where the controversy arises. The verse implies that people are unable to believe without a supernatural working of God. Some are offended just by that. Are you saying, I can't believe on my own? This, this verse further implies that God must first do a work of regeneration upon the eyes and the heart of any lost person before conversion or salvation can take place, before it's even possible. 
Those who want to hold to this complete, let's say, libertarian view of free will, that we are completely free of any outside influences when we, when we make our choices, they don't like this. In fact, some go so far as to say God doesn't have sovereignty. God doesn't have decrees. They would even go as far as to say this. God even either chooses to not know the future or he can't know the future so that our free will is preserved. That's something that's known as open theism, where God is learning the future with the rest of us. Because if God knows the future, then that means that the future is written. That means that we don't really have true free choices. That's what some people would say. And so they find much to stumble over here in this passage and in places like it. But the truth is that none of our choices are completely free of outside influence. And if you think about it, if you are born a sinner, the choices that you make, will they more than likely be sinful or not? They'll more than likely be sinful, right? If you are born a sinner, your, your, your nature will influence you. And we could even take it a step further back. Your choices will be human. Your choices will be sinful. And your choices are not made in this island of thought. You have what the world would call peer pressure. We call it the world's influence, right? Always upon your mind. Always upon your heart. And you have Satan, who is wanting to deceive you. And so none of our choices are truly free. Our choices are influenced by various stimuli and environmental factors and by our very nature. If that's the case, then we need God's grace to open our eyes before we can believe. We do need God's intervention before we can come to Christ, before we can see the truth, before we can see the light. Because as 2 Corinthians 4 says, Satan has blinded our eyes. We can't see the light of Christ unless he speaks light into the darkness and says, let there be light. That's the only way that we can see. But since... None of our choices are truly free. We must make choices based on our nature. And in doing that, we more, more than likely choose sin. And as a, as a result of that, the Lord will choose to judge. And the Lord has the right to judge sin. If he is a righteous judge, he will judge, and his judgments will be pure, his judgments will be true, and his judgments will look at what we have done and will judge us with holiness and with righteousness. And there's not a one of us who can say, God's judgment against me was unfair. I deserve that. Amen. Now, we might not like that, right? But he will choose to judge us. So the answer is not, why does God choose to judge us? 
The question is, why does God choose to show grace to some? And if God chooses to show grace to any, why would he choose me among those and not someone else? Now, some folks would say, okay, well, if he's choosing to show grace to some, then he's choosing not to show grace to others. That's right. That's something known as the doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation. He passes over some in judgment. You say, why would he choose to do that? The better question is, why does he choose to show grace? Because as a righteous judge, he would be within his right to judge all of us. And the answer to the question of why he chooses to show his grace is found in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. It's his love. It's his love. He chooses to show his love toward us. He has purposes, but those purposes are not based on anything he didn't choose me because I am more holy and righteous than anyone else. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> he didn't choose you because you just happened to be a little bit better than your neighbor who was a lot more sinful than you are. No, that's not it either. It's not that some are more evil, some are more wicked, and so he chooses to pass over them. No, no. I mean, Paul was a murderer who was persecuting the church. If anyone would be passed over for judgment, you would think it would be Paul, right? And yet he chose to show grace to Paul. God has his own purposes, but it's not based on what we do. This is what God does, and he has every right to do that. But some would say, now this, is, this still sounds unfair. Well, think about it this way. We saw in verse 37 that he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They would not believe. And so verse 39, we get to that. And it says, for this reason, they could not believe. God executes judgment so that those who would not believe now cannot believe. And this cannot believe is, is, is executed judicially. Again, according to his purposes. For those who continue to reject his warnings, he, as, as verse 40 says here, quoting Isaiah 6.10, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. He blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. This judicial act removes any ability for a person to spiritually see the truth or to perceive it within their hearts. He blinds the eyes and he hardens the heart. Should a person have eyes to see and a heart ready to receive, the Lord acknowledges that that person would then turn to him. Any person he opens, opens the eyes of, any person he opens the heart of, that person's going to turn to God and be converted. And he will, at that point, heal them from their sin, which is good. But here we see he chooses, in his divine purposes, to actually blind their eyes and harden their hearts so that they will not turn and will not be converted. This is God's judgment. And this is the will of Jesus Christ, by the way. 
someone say, that sounds like the Old Testament God. We, we worship the New Testament God. It's the same God. And in case you didn't know that, look at what he says next. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Wait a minute, who, who's him? <laughs> who's the him there? But who have we been talking about in, in context? We've been talking about Jesus. Wait a minute. Isaiah 6. Let's, let's turn back there for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 6. I don't remember seeing the name Jesus in Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, Holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the thresholds of the temple, or the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I thought he was seeing God there. Yes. I thought he was seeing Yahweh there. Yes. So how's John saying that this is Jesus? Because Jesus is Yahweh. Isaiah didn't know it, but he was seeing a pre-incarnate vision of the Son of God, high and lifted up. This is the glory, by the way, that Jesus laid aside. Philippians 2 describes this. He didn't lay aside his godhood. People misunderstand that. But Philippians 2, 5 through 8, I should say, say that he laid aside his glory and he took on the form of a servant. He took on our lowly form. And he humbled himself to the point of the cross so that he would die for our sins. And it's only after that, after verse 8 there, that, that, that we read that he then will be exalted back above every name which is to be named in heaven or on earth. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That Christ is Lord. Oh, wait, he's Lord. <laughs> Isaiah said he saw the Lord. Ah, yes. Jesus is Lord. And so in the midst of this passage, which talks about judgment, we have this wonderful image of the divinity of Christ, high and lifted up. But just like Isaiah went on to say, woe is me. We have to say that too. Because this is the God of the Old Testament. And he's the one who decreed. Repro reprobation and judgment. He's the one who decreed judicial blindness upon the people. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. 
And he is the one whose word will judge people. And so we see this image and we say, oh, that's wonderful. But we need to see it and tremble. Because this is the God we serve. The people, though, had no fear of God when they rejected the Messiah. And so God responds by blinding their hearts so that they would not believe. Those who have been judicially hardened won't come to Christ. They won't believe. And they won't confess Christ either. And that's something that we see next. Those who are judicially hardened won't confess Christ. So our last point, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, this is a fascinating direction for the text to take. And I got to say that I, I really struggled with this as I'm, as I'm reading it, because the text just said that they, they didn't believe, they can't believe, and yet many did believe. <laughs> that's what we see here. Of course, that's God's grace if they do believe. And some, we read here, do believe despite the blinding of the eyes and the hardening of the heart. In fact, we read that these believers existed even among the rulers, those who are on the council. And the word even here is, uh, as Calvin said, I think, he said that this is emphatic in his positioning, noting that, that this is the height, they're emphasizing the height at which the belief had taken, and from the lowliest of fishermen all the way on up to the rulers of the nation. There is belief. At least that's what it appears. But we run into problems with this group, don't we? Because we see that they are fearful of confessing Christ and being put out of the synagogues. Now, the Pharisees did create a climate of fear, a culture of fear. We see that in John 7, 13, when the people first came uh, to Jerusalem there for the feast. And they were all talking about Christ, but they were doing so quietly. Because as 7, 13 says, no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And as we get to chapter 9, you might remember with the healing of the blind man, we see that they did make good on their promise to put people out of the synagogue because the blind man comes to faith and they are fearful here. It says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And then we read that they did put him out of the synagogue in verse 34 of chapter 9. 
So they made good on the promise. Christians today face similar climates. They might fear, feel the fear of confessing Christ for fear of losing employment opportunities or other consequences. Just talking about foster care. Right now, the state is putting pressure on foster parents who might not be willing to bow the knee to the LGBTQ plus plus agenda. This is what we see, and there is that concern. But Jesus warned about such fear, didn't he? In places like John or Matthew chapter 32 and 33, a place, by the way, which is sometimes abused to talk about altar calls. That's not what this is talking about. But Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If you allow yourself to be controlled by your fear and you don't confess Christ, at some point, are you even a Christian? That really is the question. In fact, that failure to confess is evidence of a lack of conversion. Romans 10.10 says that the mouth confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, that confession is before God, but if you do not follow up with that confession before men, it may not be that you have really confessed your sins. It may be that you are like these who love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And by the way, the word here can be translated glory. And I think in some of your translations, it is translated glory. They loved men's glory, not the glory that came from God. This is not the way of Jesus, by the way. He condemns such glory seeking. He said, I don't need the glory of men. He tells his disciples not to seek the glory of men, but these are seeking the glory of men. And they love their position and their power over truth. I think one commentator, I think it was Calvin actually, who said that this is effeminacy because they like their delicacies, they like their fine clothing, they like their fine food. They weren't men who stood up and were willing to live a rough life if necessary found that fascinating because that is exactly what's happening here so i struggled with this passage because i don't i don't know whether these men are believers or not besides the fact that it says that they believed there's no fruit is there if there had been fruit what would happen? They would stand up, they would confess, 
The Pharisees who were so proud of themselves saying, do you even know anyone among the rulers who believe in him? They would say, oh yeah, yeah, there are actually many among the rulers who believe in him. The weakened hearts of the Israelites who were fearful of the Pharisees would see that even their rulers were willing to stand up for him. And that would have encouraged them and they would have stood up as well and they would have believed. That's what would have happened if they had men of conviction, men of character who were leading them. But they didn't. And that too is part of God's judicial judgment. These men, these Individuals, though they might have been rulers, they could not find the courage or the fortitude within themselves to step forward. And the fear to confess Christ is a sure sign of judgment upon a society. And I think that's what we see in our society today. Now, I don't want you, as we consider these things, to get too tied up in knots if you can't comprehend how the sovereignty of God and how the choices of man interplay. Because these things are higher than us. They come from a mind that is magnitudes greater than our own. It is sufficient to just simply understand that these things work compatibly in God's holy revelation. And that the Bible teaches both. God is sovereign. And man is responsible. If one rejects Christ. The Lord will pronounce condemnation. And it does seem very much like this is where our society is today. Under Judgment. I want to leave you with some encouragement, though. Some judgment is not necessarily final. Why do I say that? Well, Scripture continually called Israel to repentance, right? And some did repent. The Lord said he always had his remnant. Those who had not bowed their knee to Baal. There are times when God even hardened the hearts of the disciples. Mark 6, 52 says God hardened their heart. But guess what? They came to full faith, didn't they? We could also consider Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Among the Pharisees who were rejecting Christ, they stepped forward, didn't they? Eventually. Not at this point, but later they do. Just because we see signs of judgment upon our nation, upon the world, or upon our loved ones, it doesn't mean that we need to be quiet. It doesn't mean that we shrug it off and say, oh, well, I guess they're forever lost. No, no. The Lord calls us to confess him and to give that truth. And I hope that you will see any temptation within yourself to avoid confessing Christ and put it to death. Don't allow that fear to control you. 
The Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. And in his spirit, we can be bold as lions. Keep up the good fight. Even if our society is given over to judgment, people still need to hear the truth. And you don't know that God has not called you up for such a time as this. It may be that God will use your loving witness to bring someone to the truth to rescue a sinner from the wrath that is to come. And I hope that you will be faithful. And I hope that you will pray for your fellow believers here and pray for our church that we will remain a, a place of equipping so that people will be able to go forth and spread the gospel by God's grace.